Before we get into our questions today, and before we introduce our speakers, I'd like to ask you all a question. How many of you would say you access the internet on a daily? May I see a show of hands? And how many of you found great joy and inspiration and wisdom awakening within you this week? They're related. (laughs) I would like to highly suggest that within the next couple of weeks, when you go back to whatever life you have outside of this holy vibration in Ananda Village, that you access the internet and that you access these classes, maybe perhaps the the one that you found most meaningful, and and review it and maybe download it and really get it into your consciousness. What what was it about it that that touched you, uplifted your consciousness? I, I highly recommend a, a review of these, and we have such great resources online these days that it would be a shame not to be accessing those. So just wanted to offer that to you all and introduce our speakers. First, we have Nayaswami Daiva here from... Uh, Anando Laurelwood, he's the spiritual director there with his wife Gangamata. We have Badri here, he's working in village management at Ananda Village. And we have Nayaswami Asha, who guides the Palo Alto community. And we also have Nayaswami Parvati, who lives here at Ananda and manages the Janaka Foundation, securing Ananda's future. So, With that all out of the way, I would like to get into our questions. And thank you to all who submitted some, because uh, I think we have a really good set that can lead to some helpful discussion. So our first question today will be for Nayaswami Daiva. One of the speakers inferred that demonstration for a cause was not preferred. Don't demonstrate. Meditate. In the current political crisis, however, with human rights and the environment at risk, should we not be able to peacefully demonstrate? Realizing meditation is a true force for change, is that all we should do? Isn't taking action for the right cause also allowed? Gandhi took action. Please, give me a straight answer. Thank you all very much. <laughs> Welcome. It's a great joy to be here with you all and to uh, spend time exploring how these great truths that we have been offered by our line of masters, uh, by our guru, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, through the expression and <clears throat> um, exploration of Swami Kriyananda and Ananda. How do we get traction with these things? This particular question is fascinating to me because it actually, um, in some ways, circumscribes my life. Uh, I was there in 1970 at the first Earth Day, the Canada Second Marathon. I was there for um, protesting the uh, Vietnam War. We shut down our high school with a major protest. We, um, oh yeah, (laughs) it was great. Um, (laughs) You know, all along the way, some part of my soul has been calling for um, a revolutionary response to the things that are so evident in our world today. Um, You know, what what is being um, held out there in the news media 
these days, you know, front page news about environment, about wars, about, um, you know, chemicalization of our uh, agricultural, public and private lands, um, you know, GMOs. I mean, just the whole raft of, of things that are being held out there. This isn't new. And in some ways, it's not news. This is the inevitable consequence of a trajectory our world has been on for quite some time. And if we've been at all sensitive along the way, and I'm, gonna, I'm speaking, of course, I'm preaching to the choir, because if we've been sensitive at all along the way, and now I'm talking to the larger world, we felt restless, we felt uncomfortable, we felt very concerned that um, what was going on didn't pass the smell test, if you will. There was something fundamentally wrong active in our world. And, we, and for those of us here and those of us watching uh, around the world uh, and who may tune into this later, we're here because of that same sense of restlessness, that same sense that things don't add up and that we needed to take action, that our lives compelled us, that we were even maybe born to respond to these conditions. And then the question, of course, is how do we do so? And um, there, if we were sitting down and counseling with the person who actually asked this question, there would probably be um, a very simple and direct line to the answer. And so I'll, I'll give one. I don't know who this, who this person who, is, who asked, but if you want a very clear answer, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> if you feel God calling you to demonstrate, if you feel God calling you to do something, Specific, the answer is, of course, you should do that. And if it means protesting and demonstration, you should do that with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul as a gift of your life to God. There was a time in 1935-36, Yogananda went back to India from the West. And in the time he was there, he was approached by a man who was helping to lead an underground movement to free India from the power and, and oppression of the British regime, the British Raj And Yogananda said to the man, this isn't mine to do, but you should absolutely do this. Now, Yogananda is a master. His capacity to see the the consequences of his advice was profound. And a few years later, this man was caught and tried for treason and hung. So Yogananda must have known that this would be a part of that story. And yet he advised the man to go ahead and do it. We all have a role to play, and every action that we take individually is there to help our own soul grow in understanding, in attunement, in wisdom, in clarity, in becoming more and more transparent for the light of God to shine through for our own benefit and for the benefit of all. So if you feel called to demonstrate, by all means, demonstrate. My personal experience across the 40, 50 some years of being politically active and feeling a revolutionary power inside myself, a calling to be dynamically involved. Before I found Ananda, I was involved in, at that point, I was involved in Beyond War. I was involved in um, an early battle against, um, you know, uh, certain chemicals that we are now battling again uh, that are used uh, on our public lands that are proving cancerous, surprise. Um, I was involved in uh, I, had, I had a family. I rode a bicycle as my main form of transportation, often long distances to accomplish. So again, these are things that we're hearing echoed now but are not new. And I realized all of a sudden one day I looked around and I thought, you know, my best effort, 
my best effort is never going to make a difference. The world simply doesn't care. I can put out every ounce of energy, every, every bit of my life force, and it's just, going to, it's just going to disappear into this great vacuum. And despair followed, and fortunately what followed right after that was autobiography of a yogi. Because there was no place for the energy to go until I, I read that book, and I realized that I started to explore what is the consequence of demonstration? What is the consequence? Now, understand, we are, we are social beings at a very fundamental level. It's not superficial. Um, a test, uh, uh, an experiment was done to see man's native relationship to life. And it was Harvard or Yale or Stanford or someplace. It was some, some you know, uh, organization doing the experimentation that had the authority to do it well. And they found, they, they took people and they had them concentrate on very um, absorbing problems and questions and all spectrums of IQ and stuff. And they found that within a matter of about 15 seconds of ceasing to focus and concentrate on that, the mind would immediately revert to the question of, who am I in relationship to my tribe? Who am I? How am I doing? Am I okay? Do people like me? So we're fundamentally at a human level, and it's, it's a divine reflection because we're connected with each other. Uh, the, that question at the highest level is, how am I in relationship to God in the cosmos? How am I in relationship to my guru and ergo all of life? So it's a legitimate question. When we see, I mean, the, part of the reason the world's in the mess it is, is because of that hunger to be um, acknowledged and approved. And so the world is going down this track, and you see everybody going down it, and you go, that must be it. I don't want to be left out. And so we just join in. Swami wrote a beautiful, beautiful song about go on alone. We have to find the strength inside to start to ask deeper questions than just what is popular And then we have to start to say, what is the truth that I can live to? I'm going to start to wrap this up because we have a lot of other things to explore. I could spend, I've spent the last 50 years trying to answer this question. (laughs) It's a long conversation. But I would say that an, an interesting thing that I found is when I started to research, inevitably, when people took and fought against something, most, many of the times they were not successful and they got the harvest of that. But even when they were successful, what they replaced, what they were fighting against, what they replaced it with was of the same consciousness. Mm. It was just another flavor. Because they had reduced their consciousness, they had reduced themselves, their perspective, their point of orientation down to the level where that problem existed. And that if we want to make a substantial change, not just a functional change, but a substantial change in what's happening around us, simply going out and protesting, simply joining yet another tribe, yet another group, isn't necessarily going to give us what we're looking for. And even if we stem the tide of what's going on out there, again, one of Swami's songs, you know, um, troubles never end. Get rid of one and you meet its friend. This world is always going to be inconvenient. It's an evolutionary process. And as soon as you you, you solve one level of problem, the next level of refinement is waiting. The only thing that brings us into harmony, the only thing that starts to change the story itself, is when we meditate. 
And if we, if we see it as, should I go and do something important or should I meditate? Then the answer is, of course, you should go do something important. But I don't think that's the question here. The question is, how should I meditate? What should I do with that inner life that has more power, has more meaning than going out and demonstrating? What can I do with my sadhana? What can I do with my relationship to God and to life itself that will substantially change? How can I go so deep into the presence of God that I become a carrier, a magnet for something different. You know, it was interesting. They mentioned Gandhi. They mentioned Martin Luther King. And yes, they were very active, but they were not active against. They were active for. And Swami Kriyananda says, I never work against anything. I always work for something. And we should always do that. Mm. We should use the every ounce of our life force, our power, our wisdom, whatever gifts we've been given, we should use it and constantly toward the things that, that we feel from deep inside our soul would bring value to life, would help set us free and bring the light of God and love and joy into this world. So I don't know if that was a direct answer, but there it is. Thank you. Mm. Very, very well explained. Thank you. Um, would anyone care to add something to that, or should I move on to the next question? I think he was pretty thorough with that. So, Nayaswami Parvati, what do you do when the depth you are seeking seems at times to be very elusive? I the question means, what do you do when the depth of your seeking spiritually <laughs> seems elusive? You know... Um, I think the quickest answer to that is that false expectations are disappointing and because they're false. And so um, really on the spiritual path, when we come on that, we're tuning in. When you come to a place like Ananda, when you meditate with techniques like this, you're tuning into a different level of consciousness. And that level of consciousness will help you to understand what false expectations are about, to discard them, and to set your pace at a long-distance run. <laughs> because when you have a Swami Kriyananda saying, you know, it takes five to six million lifetimes even to reach the human level, and then at least that, if not much more, to be freed from the duality that we find ourselves in. So we've all worked very hard. We've gotten a long way by being in a place like this, by being interested in teachings like this, in meditating. Some, I heard someone say a uh, number of months ago, oh, I'm, a, I'm one of those terrible meditators. Nobody is a terrible meditator. We're all aspiring to meditate better. And don't ever have that word in your mind, I'm a terrible meditator. That just is a, a definition that really isn't helpful at all. It's challenging. Of course it is. It's called maha maya for a reason. It means it is the incredibly wonderful, large, entertaining program that's going on all around us and that we've bought into over those five to six million lives and many million lives more. And so if you wonder why it's a little hard to meditate, 
That's why we have a lot going in that direction. But also, as the speakers were saying yesterday, that pull of the divine really begins with devotion, with practice of meditation, with living a spiritual life. It really begins to pull on us, and we can't ignore it. And why does it? Because it resonates with the deepest part of who we are. Just what Daiva was saying, that we're always looking for meaning in life. This is the meaning in life that we've been looking for, so to walk away from this would be a big mistake. Um, this whole life, meditation, everything. But pacing yourself that it's a long-distance run, and that also, I remember Swami Kriyananda saying, you know, in each lifetime when we come in, it's like we see the tip of the iceberg. We see just a little bit in one incarnation of what we're all about, our aspirations, our karma, good and bad, etc. But we come in usually with one particularly important lesson to learn in a lifetime. And maybe that lesson is not leaving the spiritual path. (laughs) You know, maybe that lesson is knocking away any obstacles to meditation. But also really just setting that pace so that you understand, I'm going through a rough patch right now. You know, that rough patch might be a few days, might be a few years, might be, you know, who knows. But but put it in that way to yourself so that you're pacing yourself in a way that can work. And that's real. I think there is much of the spiritual life that we don't see happening to us, that we put out all this effort, and it isn't for nothing. It really is helping us as we go along so that pacing is very, very important. And I remember uh, being with Swami Kriyananda about a year before he passed, maybe a couple of years, and he was answering some questions about his life and all of that. And at a certain point he said, you know, you can be doing everything right, but it's up to God's grace to free you. So even at the end of all these many incarnations, we can be doing everything right, but we need to, at that point, relax into God's grace and that our liberation, our freedom of any kind will come at God's pleasure, not our own. So our next question will be for Badri. How do you offer advice to people when they haven't asked for it, but but it seems like they need a correction? You don't. (laughs) Of course, that's the easy answer. And... Perhaps it's a more complex question than that. If it was a question made in earnest, we certainly all can relate to this kind of thing. But I would flip that around and say, focus on what you can change in yourself. Perhaps you need a correction. And let's imagine that perhaps this person does need a correction of sorts. Um, And perhaps that question or that correction rather affects you directly. 
or falls under your purview. And in this case, in this instance, perhaps it would be appropriate to make a correction to this person. But I would be very cautious in doing so. And we know that Swami Kriyananda and Master himself were uh, very short on making corrections, and very long on leading by example. And that's the way that we should be as yogis. And in as much as it may be appropriate to correct someone's faults or behavior in some way, uh, to not do so lightly. So the teachings that we've been just diving into all week, attunement and right action and habits, using the spiritual tools that we know bring us our own realization will aid us in our ability to serve others, above all by our example and more so uh, if it is, again, appropriate to correct someone in some way, meditate deeply. Use your intuition. Uh, be sure that that course of action is the right one. Also, seek the counsel of those with wisdom. You know, as I look around here, that's something else that we're long on, is spiritual friends and company who have the ability, if we do not, or in addition to our own intuition, have the ability to tune into a given situation or to a person and to aid in the enfoldment of their spiritual growth. Because that's why we're here, for no other reason, not to fix one another. Uh, we're here to fix ourselves and to correct our own delusion that we are separate from God. So any correction that needs being made, as I said, I would not do so lightly or Perhaps, in most cases, not at all. So many times, again, living here at Ananda Village, but having satsang, as we all do, to whatever degree, we can see this in those with wisdom, leading by example, again and again. Um, I was thinking earlier in this week, as Ananta was telling us about making circles, I realized in that moment, still making circles. He drives his tractor around in circles. <laughs> all summer long on the farm. And he's not just stagnant, making circles all these years. He's moving towards God. And so it doesn't really matter what we're doing. Let's err on the side of being cautious with our satsang, with our divine friendships, and always, always move towards God. Just one other brief story comes to mind, working with another great mentor and friend here, I would perhaps try to keep him anonymous, but the nature of his work will reveal his identity. Working with Nayaswami Prakash, he was once with me helping to dig a large pit for a septic tank at my house. Large meaning about 12 feet deep and 10 to 15 feet wide and long. And when we finished, for the most part, digging this large pit, uh, he parked his backhoe there. We were going to resume some work the next day. And in the morning, when we came back to this pit, there was a skunk in the bottom of the pit. And he was not happy, the poor wretch. We had a great deal of compassion for him. He had been in there for some hours, obviously scratching and trying to find a way out of this trap. And so what did I do? I said, I'm going to help this little bugger. And I got pipes and boards and things, and I, he would spray at me, and I would try to coax him up the thing, and it didn't work. 
Okay. My intentions were good. He needed some correction. But it didn't work. And do you know what Prakash did? This is not to show any greatness of Ananta or Prakash. Just like the masters, they're there to show us how to live ourselves. Prakash, with his backhoe bucket, swiveled around, reached down to the bottom of the pit, paused a moment and let the skunk climb into the bucket, and he lifted it out and set it free. How did he do that? It reminds me of the story, Are You My Mother? For those of you that know it, which I will not tell right now. Um, In any case, he did it through his vibration. You know, whether we're correcting another individual or in any action, it matters with which the energy that we do it, with the vibration. And Prakash is someone who lives in God, centered in his spine, just as we all aspire to do, and we do to some degree, increasingly. But the vibration with which we do anything, correcting someone else, our service, our relationships, is what really matters. So err on the side of caution when faced with correcting another. Consider that most likely you should not. And above all, do it with God's presence and guidance and your own spiritual growth in mind. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Badri. Our next uh, question is for Nayaswami Asha. I work in elderly care, and I often wonder why God will leave people in their bodies, sometimes for years, while they are confused and suffering. It has led me many times to doubt that a God of mercy and love even exists. Why would a perfect divine creator allow such darkness and despair? All good questions. Um, Many of you know Kamala Silva. She was one of Master's dear disciples. She was a teenager when her mother, she and her mother met Master. And she wrote the book uh, Flawless Mirror and another wonderful story. Very, very beautiful devotee. She went completely away from this planet in her, well, whatever you call it, dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it was. And I was in the car with Swami Kriyananda, and he mentioned to me that Kamala was in this condition because her husband had contacted us, and she came here for a time. And, uh, you know, she's out of her mind. I said, Swami, she's lost her mind. He said, Asha, she's just lost her mind. I said, Swami, she's lost her mind. And he said again, she's just lost her mind. And to me, that seemed like something more significant than he seemed to think. Um, and then when she was here and I met her, I realized that all she'd lost was her mind. You know, she, she was perfectly intact in terms of that which endures, which was her spirit was still there, her joy was still there, she still remembered Master. She just said, introduce yourself to me, I will immediately forget your name, but tell me anyway, just like that. And she, when she was in Crystal Hermitage, she looked around and said, Wow, this is where Kriyananda lives. He would live in a place like this. <laughs> I don't know where she drew that one from, but it was, it was just so delightful. Now, not everyone who goes into Alzheimer's is happy. 
by any means at all. But what, what's behind this question is a, is a much more fundamental one which has to be answered. What is the purpose of life? And we are so persuaded that the purpose of life is to be comfortable and to have pleasure. And we even call it bad karma when it interrupts our comfort and it interrupts our pleasure. But from the divine point of view, it doesn't really make any difference what the price is. The goal is worth the price. So when people, for biological or whatever reasons, end up uh, one step over or many steps over from the normal capacity to perceive this world, which, I mean, like, hey, like, is this such a great thing to be able to see this world the way it looks to us? We're accustomed to it, and we operate in a system where it's more convenient to be able to. But what happens for people is, and this is the other part of it, and I'll speak very briefly about my own parents. My mother had Parkinson's for 15 years, and my father in the last couple of years, really, he just, at a certain point, he looked at it and he said, you know what? This is not fun. And he went on a little vacation, and he just checked out. And his mind suddenly kind of went somewhere else, and... uh He just went away because he was finished. He'd had enough. He needed a holiday before he went on again. And I freaked out early on with a lot of this. But then (laughs) a a little uh, spiritual principle came to me. This is their karma. And this is the inevitable next step of all the other steps they've taken. All of their whole life experience piece by piece has come together, and this is the next necessary step. And would I deprive them of that? And would I help them by panicking, or by judging, or by saying it ought to be different? Like, what am I really talking about here? You know, everybody has a right and a duty to carry out what they have to do. And if it doesn't look good to you, well, it's not yours. And if it's miserable for them... Well, it's a karmic debt they have to pay. Would you prevent them from learning the lessons that they have to learn? And why is the necessary struggle to learn a lesson considered to be a sign that God doesn't love us? What would actually be a sign would be like a a friend of mine. (laughs) Um, She never wanted to hear her children cry. So she crippled them for life. Is that love? You know, if you ask the wrong question, you can't find the answer. And yes, it's challenging. Um, We used to take people to India on a pilgrimage trip. And I began to watch, because uh, especially we started in 1986. Um, India's changed a lot is what I mean. You know, we were, (laughs) there we are in the Grand Hotel on the fifth floor with the marble bathtub and all these servants and so on. And you could just watch out your window the family that lived on the sidewalk. And you could, you know, we were there for five days, and you could watch them live their lives on the sidewalk down below. People had an extremely diverse response to all to that. And after years of doing this, I began to understand people's capacity to observe what appeared to be the suffering of others was the calm capacity was exactly in proportion to the degree to which they had in themselves accepted the necessity for suffering as the avenue to spiritual growth. So our instinctive reaction against the suffering of others is really the fear we have in our own heart. And that's the good news. 
Because you can't change his karma, but you can change your own. There's a very important question and a, and a right up against the edge for your own spiritual growth. And I would just just like to clarify something. This mother who didn't like to hear her children cry, she didn't literally cripple them for life. She, would you clarify just for anybody else who doesn't? <laughs> she was always so eager to prevent them from having to develop any inner strength that mm. they grew up without any inner strength. Mm, she coddled you. them into complete ineffectiveness. Mm. Thank you. Very important. <laughs> I see. You think she might have beaten them. Well, <laughs> no, 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 I, I didn't make it clear. <laughs> Just wanted to be absolutely clear in case. <laughs> okay. Nayaswami Daiva. I have recently become much more aware of the amount of judgment I put out towards people, especially those who are not devotees. I want to be done with it, but it is a strong habit. What can I do to transcend this weakness? It makes me miserable. That's a good question. Uh, It is probably one of the common things we all struggle with. Um, If you think trying to overcome judgment makes you miserable, I would suggest it doesn't make you nearly as miserable as the consequences of judgment which is that we become that which we judge. It's just that simple. How do you overcome it? Patience. Time. I, a little personal story that's current. Um, Years ago, as, as yogis, watch your fleeting thoughts. Because they, you'll find that they often tell a much greater part of your story than you would like. I was looking at the masters one day. I don't know where this thought came from, but there it was. And I looked at the picture of Lahiri Mahashaya. And I thought, now, before, let, me, let me preface this a little bit. I was the same weight at 48 years old that I was when I was in high school. And I thought, how can such a great yogi and a a God-realized master be so pudgy? (laughs) I know how. (laughs) And while this is really really cute and light, it actually has a lot of depth in it because the things that we judge are the things that we think are separate from ourselves. Oh, I could never be like that. But we are universal. You know, I am the immortal Atman, as we heard this week. We are what's possible for anyone is possible for us from the deepest depravities to the greatest glories and every time we allow our mind to separate ourselves from any part of the dream, any part of that, that scope of things, we, we work against our yoga because God is equally present in all of it. And if we want to reclaim our oneness with God, we have to be able to see the same light of God in every circumstance. I don't know how to answer the question uh, in terms of how to overcome it, except patience and time and sensitivity to 
um, what's really happening in your life. Because a lot of the things, probably for this individual, for most of us, a lot of the things that we struggle with are actually the consequence of a judgment we put out at one time. Something we didn't understand, something we thought was, was out there someplace and a problem that was their problem, and now we have it. And if we start to, again, just turn our consciousness inward, start to look at ourselves instead of projecting outward on the world, start to feel ourselves alive, feel ourselves whole, look at the places where we have discrepancies in how we think it ought to look in our own lives and how it really looks, and start to realize those are probably places where we've gotten stuck before and just starting to relax and enjoy the show as it is. What difference does it make? What difference does it make what somebody else is? In fact, it's a part of the great grand play that we should all be slightly different. The very definition of ego, the very definition of maya is imperfection. So, I don't know. I, I, I hope somebody will chime in and have a better answer for this. But I would just say, be patient, be sensitive, um, relax, breathe, meditate deeply, enjoy. And, uh, you know, as, as Christ said, you know, <clears throat> look not at the moat in somebody else's eye, but the beam in your own. You know, start to just look more inward and see what's going on in your own world. Okay. Thank you, David. Okay, our next question will be for Nayaswami Parvati. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's a great idea. Let's all just get up and stretch in our own way, get the life force moving through your blood cells. Okay, so Nayaswami Parvati, what is the difference between habit and routine? I find that as I get older, I have more resistance to change. How do I combat becoming a psychological antique? (laughs) I'll just add add on to what Daiva was just talking about. Raise your consciousness. (laughs) It's all about consciousness. But... um, Uh, There's an interesting article that it might be nice to read. It's called Growing Younger, and it was in Clarity magazine around 2006. And it's a compilation of several things out of the Perceptal Lessons of Masters and uh, the Essence of Self-Realization book. And uh, he starts out with an interesting little poem by Browning. And he, first of all, he says, you know, you, people expect to be uh, in pleasure and expect all of these things in life, and it doesn't happen, and they're very disappointed. But he said this poem of Browning's really kind of summed it up for, for Yogananda. Um, oh, now am I going to remember it? Come get old with me. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I, it wasn't, that wasn't, it wasn't quite, yeah, but anyway. Come and get old with me, the bet, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made. And Yogananda had this interesting thing, he said, and yet we see all around us really people that are in trouble. Their bodies are falling apart, their mental state is not good, they're worried, they're all of that. And he talked about um, just the way that you, the way that you live, the way that you live your life. And at the very end, he naturally talks about meditation because meditation allows us to come into the present moment, to really live in the present moment. And if you practice meditation and then in your life, just be here and now. Don't live in the past. That already happened. That's done. Can't do anything about that. Don't live in the future. It isn't here yet. And so if we just keep... At one point when I was uh, on the path a number of years ago, and I was just thinking, just drop into the present moment. Relax into the present moment. And that, when I would do that every day, I could just feel the, the power, the relaxation and the perspective that it gives to you. The other thing that I've always really deeply appreciated uh, that Swami Kriyananda really said to us a lot when many of us came here in the early, in the 70s, all of that, we were in our 20s by and large. But Swami Kriyananda's comment to us was, don't think of yourself as young or old, don't think of yourself as male or female. Don't define yourself in any way. You are a soul and you can do anything. And if you live in that way, it makes you light and free because you're not defining yourself constantly. You're not saying, oh, well, let's see now, uh, this year I'm uh, 40. Oh, wow. You know, and then in 20 years I'll be Wow, 60. And, you know, and it just, and all the things that go along with that habit rather than just routine, being a psychological antique. Well, I always say, you know, if you, if you find yourself saying that, cut it out. It's, erase it because that's the path that leads to old age. And really, as yogis, there is no such thing as old age. Yes, the body gets older, and in fact, it's really important along with that dropping into the present constantly, living in the present, is that you realize more and more, it becomes your own experience. I am a soul who has a body, who has a personality, who has a mind, All these things I've taken on, but they're not me. And you have to drop into that reality, that experience of that reality, for it to really work. And once you do that, then you find, and Swami Kriyananda, along with all those don't think of yourself, define yourself in any way, he said, a yogi should be able to turn on a dime. If something happens and you need to go in another direction, you should be able to do that immediately. 
because, and it's good test. I mean, these things are always happening to us in life. Things change, and all of a sudden we've got to go in a different direction. And we can do that with the least amount of emotional upheaval, depending on how detached we are. If the more attached we are to how things are and who we are and how we define ourselves, then it's painful. You know, you feel like the Band-Aid getting ripped off the little wound you have and, ah! <laughs> you know. But, but if, you're, if you're free in yourself and you're living in the moment and you're really not identified with yourself in any particular way, then it's easy to do. Somebody last year, I had a big birthday party, fun. I had friends. We had cake and we had breakfast and all that kind of stuff. I turned 70. And somebody after that said, so how do you feel? I said, light. And, you know, you don't always maintain that, but I did feel that. I just felt like this part, just as Browning's poem says, the best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made because by the time you reach 40, a lot of the emotional upheaval is dying down. Now this is a point where people can get bored, can get, you know, really like, oh my God, what is is life all about? But for us as yogis, it's a time of increasing freedom if we take it in that way. So as Jyotish talked about on Monday, it's all about consciousness and put all of your effort, all of it, into raising your consciousness. Through that, everything changes. Okay, next question is for Badri. I made a mistake. I feel so bad I can't even look at Master's picture. I feel like I have lost my connection with the grace of the gurus. How can I get it back? Thank you, question. I'll just start by briefly adding to Parvati's uh, very good answer as the <clears throat> token young person on this panel and still having some years to go before 40, that uh, of the few interactions that I had with Swami Kriyananda on a more personal or intimate level of very few. I sat with him once in his apartment in our first meeting of that nature. And he looked at me and I was brand new and didn't know what I was into. He looked at me directly in the eyes and he said, you know, the only difference between you and me is I'm in this 82 year old body and you're in that 22 something year old body. And I thought immediately, I can think of a few other things. (laughs) They're different, but that's not what he was referring to. Um, So Parvati said it well uh, in more than one way. But essentially, yeah, let's raise our consciousness no matter the age. um, Let's develop the right habits and the right sort of life to combat the uh, terrible psychological antiqueness. So the question about making a grave mistake. um, What strikes me initially is that this person could be any of us who's made this mistake, however terrible it might be. And this world can get pretty bad in many ways. Um, This person as a devotee, 
not being able to look at master's picture and so forth has compounded, nay, worsened this mistake so much so, however bad it was, they've taken it to the nth degree and made the fatal error spiritually of making that something they identify with. I am that mistake, and I'm no longer connected to Master and to God. So whatever it may be, judgment of others or far worse, um, we can only use our imagination, but initially we have to own that mistake. And if you're beating yourself up about it, you're probably owning it too much. And I would say own it in the highest way, which is to say to give it to God and to make really truly make God the doer of everything. We know most of us that master said to give God our failures, that he he even likes that. Um, So try not to err or make these mistakes. But when you do give it with all your heart, and mind to God and surrender to him your mistakes and let his love and his grace heal that wound, whatever it may be. And you just see increasingly in ways large and small, whether good or bad, God is the doer in everything. Most of you know that in May, um, or rather a little bit later in the year, but the Ananda Master Plan was approved unanimously by the Planning Commission of Nevada County, and then the Board of Supervisors, which is a remarkable thing. And prior to that, there had been a reporter from the local newspaper, The Union, out here to do an article and some interviews. And when he drafted up a nice little article about what we were doing with this master plan process, which, if you don't know, is just about the development of Ananda Village into the future and working with local government um, regulations and so forth to to comply. Uh, So various studies and a great deal of work. In fact, let's give a little applause because it's, it's really monumental. It's huge. Anyways, this, this article that came out when someone sent me the link, I, I read it and I read it again. I read it again and it read, let me see if I can get this right. It said Ananda villages master to face planning commission of Nevada County. <laughs> Ananda Village's master. <laughs> I read it like six times. And then I replied and I said, did they leave the word plan out of the headline of the article? Ananda Village's master? To fa-. And I said, okay, master's doing it all. <laughs> I mean, Ananda Village's master in the newspaper. To fa- and they corrected the headline later and people said it wasn't. Yeah, but... I still have the, the email to prove it. Anyways, you see in these small, okay, humorous ways, beautiful, God is the doer in everything. But yes, even your mistakes, especially your mistakes, it's easy to give the good things to God, easier perhaps. When you fail, no matter how poorly, firstly, give that to God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, and then do what you can to reconcile that mistake, of course. This is a path we know of supreme idealism and spiritual aspiration and also supreme practicality. If you blew it with a friend or at work or in some way, do your best to make it right. Don't sit by idly and say God did it. But make God the doer, see him as the doer, and then see him as the doer to whatever degree you can in that reconciliation. And if you can't, give it to God and double down, triple down on your spiritual practices 
because raising our consciousness, as Parvati said so simply, is the only way. It's the key. And I'll just finally add that of all the ways we can raise our consciousness, Kriya Yoga, all the spiritual tools and techniques we've been talking about all week, above all, give your love and your devotion to God and to Master or to whatever form of God you hold dear, because that is the essence of the spiritual path. That is the spiritual key that will unlock the vault of God's presence in us and wash away all of our mistakes, no matter how bad, all of our shortcomings and faults and failures will be washed away in that powerful touch of God's love. Thank you, Bhatri. Okay, our next question will be for Nayaswami Asha. And this is somewhat related, so I'm sure you would have something to say about that topic anyway. But I had a strong feeling that I should do something, and it turned out to be very bad for me. I was sure I was acting on an intuition, and I was wrong. I feel like I can no longer trust myself. It's very discouraging, and I'd like to know how I can develop real intuition that I can trust. I uh, refused to teach the subject of intuition for many years because I just thought it was too complicated. And I felt that sometimes I was doing more harm than good. And I said to Swamiji on the phone on some conversation that I just don't teach that subject anymore. I said, I think I had an experience where I gave a whole class and then someone came up and made it clear to me that they had actually taken everything I'd said, the opposite of what I said it. I think that was my last class. And... uh, when I said to Swamiji, I just don't want to touch the subject. It's too compl- too subtle. And he said, Asha, intuition is everything. And it just doesn't make any difference if people don't get it. They have to eventually understand it, and therefore you just have to face into it, and we all just have to keep going. So I think the first answer to that question is, Honey, you, me, and all of us here it's it's not an easy thing, and people toss it off somewhat lightly, um, and the consequences, um, like Parvati said, if you have false expectations, they won't come through. So to actually think that it's just as easy as saying, oh, I want to be guided, and you'll be guided. I've uh, Swami said to me at one point that I have strong intuition, but I also have very strong opinions and very strong feelings. So it's hard for me to tell because there's a lot of force. You know, I live my whole life with a lot of force. So I I live my falsehoods with as much force as I live my truth. And so the criteria for how you can tell, it's a very, very complicated issue. And here's the, 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 the class that I use as my template was one Swami gave. His very first words are, it's not about developing intuition. It's about developing absolute neutrality about what happens. Because the reason we can't tell what is intuition and what is not is because, well, guess what? We don't want to know. Because we have already set parameters around what will please us and what won't. Then the other part of the question is, how do you know your intuition was wrong? Just because it blew up. We think that intuition... Is, is a physical reality. I feel guided to. 
you know, take this job, marry this person, have this child. And then we take something which is completely non-material and we, we reduce it to something material. And then we judge it by a criteria that doesn't even apply. The only thing Master wants for us is our spiritual freedom. And we are so persuaded that he also wants me to have this or this or this. So sometimes global humiliation is what the object of the exercise is. (laughs) (laughs) Who's to say it was wrong for you to walk into something that completely explodes your egoic self-identification. Even your egoic self-identification that I'm a devotee and I know what I'm doing. Um, On a very practical matter, I would put it this way. If you feel what you think is an intuition from God, and, and God knows, have them. Consult with people you trust. And if you don't have somebody in your life that you trust, cultivate someone that you can trust whose impartial, impersonal wisdom you can rely upon and whose relationship with you is such that they will tell you the truth. And don't go to them and say, God told me to! I have people come to me on a regular basis, and I'm not really pointing fingers, but people come and say, Master told me to do so-and-so. And then they'll ask me, what do I think? <laughs> so to have any contrary opinion means that I'm against God. That's a hard position to be in. Um, Swami Kriyananda, who had more right than any of us to claim divine intuition and really never did anything without it, almost never referred to it. He used sweet reason. He used the response of the world around him. He used common sense. So he, he, he started with an intuition, but he wasn't afraid then to bring it out. I mean, he had courage beyond. I'm not necessarily the, saying that you, you know, that you send an email to 40 people like he would do, but ask somebody with the real courage. Am I right? You know, how can you know? And then when you come a cropper, which, welcome to the party, all you can say is, well, Master's trying to teach me what true intuition is. And one of the ways, it certainly I've learned, is by all the times that it wasn't. Just as simple as that. And also, again, he, he might be intuitively guiding you to crash and burn because what you actually need to learn is how to deal with crashing and burning. You see, it's not a physical thing. It's just, I move, I'm right, I'm wrong, and now what do I do? Is it easy? No, of course not. But not being on the path is much worse. So... It just comes with the territory. There's just no other way around it. You know, part of also, just one last thing, every time, because we all go through this in community, because it's always, you know, everybody knows. (laughs) Everybody always knows. (laughs) One of my dear friends, who shall remain nameless, just made such a mess. I mean, it was really a mess. It was about 30 years ago, but even now it stands out. It was big. And it was God who told him to do it, too. And when it all exploded, he walked up to me and he just and I could see it. And we weren't even close in this way, just spiritually. He marched up to me. You know, you could see it was, I am going. And he said, of course you know, what do you think? But I knew what he was doing. 
he was just saying, just because I made a mistake, I'm not going to worship it. And I mean, it took everything he had to do that. But that's intuition, you know. I have nothing to protect. I just am what I am before my conscience and God and all my guru buys. But you'll never find a more generous, loving family. So what do you have to worry about? <laughs> Thank you, Ashen. Naswami Daiva. I have always had strong monastic tendencies in this life. However, I have married, and I find myself often wanting to return to a formal renunciate life and forsake my marriage, especially when there is challenges. (laughs) I (laughs) I want a life of peace and harmony, and my relationship does not seem to be producing this. Can I go back to the first topic for just a moment? <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. I'd like to go back to the first topic because we talked about being revolutionary. And I just wanted to say the most revolutionary thing that we can do on this planet that I can find is exactly what everybody here is doing and what Ananda is doing around the globe, the changing of consciousness. I just want to pay a tribute to the impossibility in the face of what's really happening in the bulk of this planet, the impossibility of what's happening through Ananda and the movement of, uplift, of upliftment of consciousness, of joy, of wholeness, in the face of all the disintegrative um, forces that are out there, I just want to pay tribute to that and say thank you all for having the courage and the revolutionary tendencies to be willing to step into this against all odds. So anyway, thank you all. I don't suppose that bought me out of this question. Um, you could pass if you'd like. No, it's an important question. Um, what we have to learn is what we have to learn. Learn it now, learn it later. Um, it's very easy. I have a lot of monastic tendencies. Just uh, I've lived in a cave many lifetimes. I've done a lot of things. Um, on my own and independently, and I'm very happy in that way. So I can relate to the underlying tendency that's there in the question. But I don't remember where the reference was, but somebody noted that for monastics, it's very easy to think you're doing fine because there's nobody to tell you that you're not. (laughs) I get along with myself just fine. I must be okay. I like my habits. They must be good. And when you get into relationship with others, you start to discover that uh, there may be a larger reality to relate to. This is, in particular, a, um, an important time for us learning how to relate. Yogananda said that um, there are several paths to God, and one of them, of course, is meditation and upliftment of consciousness like that. Another one is expansion of sympathies. The ability to feel ourselves in other people's realities, to begin to experience and discover the common underlying consciousness that's there expressing through all the individuality. And to the degree that we're married to not another individual, but our own patterns, our own thought forms, our own commitments to how life should and shouldn't be, we're actually stuck. Swami Kriyananda at one point said a yogi should be able to be married to anybody. Um, I mean, that's a large pill to swallow. That's a, that's, 
you know, there's a wide variety of individuals out there, and I don't know that we're all supposed to just be able to be married to anybody, but in concept, it's really true. I would suggest for this individual, um, I mean, it's a hard question, because sometimes the disharmony in a relationship is so great that what's happening is not the burning off of karma and expansion of consciousness, but a reinforcement of, of karmic patterns and increasing um, disharmony that radiates out. You know, everybody is affected. Everybody is affected by a good relationship in a positive way. And everybody's affected by a difficult relationship in ways that are painful. It was noted earlier in the week that there is little in this world, little in creation that causes more joy, sets free more joy or causes more pain than our human relationships. Um, when a person or a couple is suffering, usually it's not just one person. Both are usually struggling inside of relationships that are difficult. The tendency is to want to contract and pull away and go back into a familiar environment. And sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes we just need a time out. But if we can instead continue to try and meditate, meditate together, expand our consciousness, try and feel the underlying motivations that are resident in the, in the people we're having difficulty with, if we can reach deeper into an expanded sense of ourselves, sometimes that can help bridge and help bring back the harmony that we're seeking. And certainly the victory in any circumstance like is being described comes not from just retreat into ourselves and into our familiar and comfortable modes, but in an expanded awareness that has a greater sense of harmony and well-being. So... Thank you, Daiva. Nice, Swami Parvati. How do we remember to bring God more dynamically into our lives? I find it's hard to work while holding on to God's presence. Another very good question. Um, it would be kind of the same way that you would hold on to that relationship. Um, I just wanted to add briefly that the beginning of that question was, I have strong monastic tendencies. And so it's like you're putting that in the way of, of or you think it's different from having a, a relationship, having a partner. And really, in our time, I think it's important to remember that Yogananda came to bring very revolutionary and different ways of looking at all of life. And here at Ananda, we have a monastic order as the core of our work and as the core of each of the Ananda communities. And I'd say half, maybe more of those people are married, and yet it's a monastic order. And so that monasticism, it means mono, it means God alone. And so I, when this was really evolving dynamically in the 1980s here at the village, uh, this concept, um, I could feel that it was, it, absolutely it's God alone. That is the core of your, your life. And then you choose what your, you don't choose, but you attune to what your dharma is in the way that you live your life. Maybe it's being single, maybe it's being a monk or a nun, maybe it's being married. But more it comes from that center. 
And if you can attune to that center, uh, then you can have a better chance of having a, a good relationship. And the other two words, which were talked about earlier this week in regard to relationships, are respect and trust. And those grow over time. And it grows as you attune to another person's vibration. And it can take a long time. You know, you just think, oh, we really like each other and this will be great. And, and it isn't. And, and you really have to get in there because how much do we actually know another person? And so when you're living with someone, you really have to have distance, even though you're living with them. And you have to attune over time to their real uh, vibration, their nature. What will allow them to trust you? What will allow them to feel respect from you? And in that vibration, then that, that kind of a relationship can evolve. Love comes, of course, but there ha- it doesn't come without those two. And then what was the question again? <laughs> Oh, about work and, and I God. I find it's hard to attune to God's presence while working. Yeah, well, it's hard to attune to God's presence at all <laughs> um, in any situation. But, you know, I think it's also because we separate, you know, now I'm going to work, and that's separate from what I do in meditation. And these are classic things that we talk about. But we have to figure out, each of us, in our own unique way, how we're going to bridge that gap and hang on to that consciousness. So we meditate in the morning, and then we have to figure out how to take that consciousness into what we're doing with work. And so work is service, and so if we're serving God, no matter what we do, where we do it, here at the village, out in San Francisco, Pranaba and I have lived all over the world with Ananda, and with that purpose of serving Master's work, I never really found it a problem to live pretty much anywhere. There was maybe one place that I had a problem with, but, but for the most part, being in the city, being in the country, being wherever, being in a different country, it was all really kind of the same because there was that feeling that it was all really about that consciousness of service, whether it was in meditation or in what I was doing outwardly. When I um, uh, started working with the Janaka Foundation, which is about estate planning that's supporting people, doing estate planning that supports our work, all of Ananda's work, um, I didn't know anything about estate planning. I had no inkling about the terms. I mean, I knew there was this concept of a will and all of that. But I really didn't know anything about it. And it was like, okay, I just took a deep breath and I said, okay, thinking about my previous answer, you can do anything. I can do anything. So I I took it in that way, and uh, I just jumped into it. I got on a plane. I went to Chicago. I took one of the most difficult fundraising courses, a three-day course on plan giving. And uh, I found that, and I thought, oh, Chicago, I don't like Chicago. But I love Chicago because I was there for the right reason. Master was with me. Divine Mother was with me. And I found when I walked into that room of, in the most difficult course they offered of about 40 people, 
all those people in that room were just like me. They didn't know anything about plan giving, and they were there to learn and learn the language and all of that. And so it was a wonderful three days, very intense. At the end of each day, I'd jump out of that room and go for a nice long walk down the main street of Chicago and enjoy all the windows and all of that, just feeling Divine Mother and Master's presence. And, uh, and things evolved from there. And one other sweet thing that happened that I'd like to close with is that, in other words, bridging that gap means that you really bring Master and Divine Mother with you no matter what you're doing. And uh, at one point I went to take a a uh, little one-day seminar in San Francisco, and I'd plan out where I was going to park because it's so hard to get around there. So I'd drive in and have valet parking and then go to the place. And I thought, wow, what am I doing here? <laughs> but I got the for the first one I went to, it was down by the ferry building in San Francisco, and there's this huge plaza area. And I walked into it, and there was a statue of Mahatma Gandhi garlanded with flowers in the middle of that piazza. And I thought, you know, God is everywhere. And uh, and it was just such a sweet, because I had these thoughts in my mind right at that time, and I walked in and I thought, that's fabulous. I mean, I don't know of another place in San Francisco where a statue is garlanded with flowers. But, uh, but it was very sweet. And just to constantly feel, bring with you uh, that divine presence in whatever you're doing. That bridge is not easy, but it is possible, and it will make all the difference in your spiritual life. Okay, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Badri, I have a pop quiz for you. You have 30 minutes to meditate each day. One day, as you are about to meditate, a desperate stranger asks for help. You have been taught meditation is the main way to God and should be your main focus. What should you do? Help the stranger or meditate? (laughs) What would be master's advice? This is how the question ends. Well, that's a lofty string to pick it up by. But I would first say, strange, desperate person, why are you in my meditation room? (laughs) (laughs) And then, more than likely, depending on the circumstances, proceed to help this strange and desperate person. Um, in whatever way I can. You know, the broader theme that is obviously, perhaps, I think, more relatable to all of us, that's been recurring, that Parvati was just talking about and all week, Ananta spoke beautifully on, is this idea of the balance of work and meditation. So if you're faced with a circumstance like this, probably what you're supposed to do is to see God in this person and help them and serve them. And then I would add to that, the first chance you get, sit and do your meditation practice. Don't neglect it, but also see, as Master said, what comes of itself, let it come. Um, Children are a great teacher this way. (laughs) My sadhana has changed since I've had two children. And in fact, when I first came here, I came with a very dedicated meditation practice. I still like to think I have one. But it's changed, and that's, that's okay. I've grown to accept and to work with that. Um, 
prior to coming here and living at Ananda Village for two years as Master's Disciple and, and for the subsequent three or so years before children, BC, as Gyandev put it <laughs> recently, um, I, I was and I still am, but extremely dedicated twice a day, Kriya Yoga. That is the utmost. But I still remember the first time uh, riding with a friend on some Saturday or another busy day and serving at Ananda, volunteering for something at the Crystal Hermitage or driving over there. And she said to me, and I haven't even had a chance to meditate yet. And I looked and it was 10 o'clock in the morning and I, my eyes got wide. And I, she hasn't even meditated yet this morning. But I quickly learned that that's okay. I mean, it, it's not an excuse, necessarily a valid excuse, although you may have one. To help someone in need is a worthy cause, provided that you see them as, as God, as God serving God, and then meditate. But having children, again, has forced me. It's not necessarily the desperate, needy person. It's the child who needs my attention, who I need to see God in. And so if I can get up at five o'clock each morning to do my sadhana, then I will. If, as oftentimes is the case, I'm not able to do so, then I'll do my sadhana anyways to the best I can. My wife and I, Gita, we take turns doing our sadhana, being with the kids. You smell pancakes and hear screaming in the other room, but you focus on God and you do your kriyas. You need to not separate these two aspects of your life. In fact, merge them, as we've been talking about all week, but never forsake one for the other or pretend that they are different. We know that most of us at Master said, work for God is as good as meditation. It's as good as meditation. Okay, so it feeds our meditation, and our meditation feeds our work. As again, Ananta spoke beautifully on it earlier this week. Just, I have to tell one more brief Ananta story, because the most blissful in many ways year of my life was the first year that I moved to Ananda in 2009 and 10 working on Ananda farm with Ananta and Maria and others and every day we would meditate in Rani Ket temple from 5 to 7 a.m. and it was just there were wonderful deep still meditations usually just a few of us and afterwards we'd work on the farm and it was just, it was good work. It was good meditation. Life was simple and, and really beautiful in that one regard. And after, it, it was one of my, like my first month here, we had a deep meditation. Shortly after we were out picking persimmons from the tree out in front of Mary Kretzman's house that were overdue. And Ananta was up, we, we had ladders and then last from the ones were the one on top. And Ananta's like 12 feet tall. So he was up there picking the ones from the top and he would hand them down to me. And if you ever get a chance to work with Ananta, again, this is not, I'll reiterate, this is not about Ananta's greatness. If he's great, it's because he's given his life to God every day, all these years. And there's very little Ananta left to be great. It's, it's God. And he's always got something under his breath. It's always God. And um, he's chanting to God or he's got God on his mind. He's serving God in everything we're doing. And I was still new to all this and, and enjoying this. And we're picking persimmons and, and he grabs a handful. I think it was three or it was three persimmons in his hand. And he hands them down to me without missing a beat. He says, Babaji, the here is Teshwar. I held these persimmons. <laughs> Babaji, the here is Teshwar. He was in God, just the same as we were in meditation earlier. 
And I had had breakfast and changed and got out there, and now I was picking persimmons. But Ananta was no different. He works as hard as anybody I know, but there's no, as I said, there's no Ananta there um, to do that work. So whether it's the desperate stranger or more uh, oftentimes just the daily activities of our life, let's see it as serving God and make that not only serve our meditation and our spiritual life, but as good as meditation. And then we really will find God in this lifetime. And we will know that we are one with him and he is always with us. Okay. So our last question will be for Nayaswami Asha. And... We know that Master said that if we do just 10% of what he teaches, we can find freedom. Does this mean that we get to choose 90% of his teaching to disregard if we wish? (laughs) I don't know. Try. See if it works. I think the operative words there is, do we get to choose? I don't think the what follows that phrase really matters. Uh, because the reality of it is, we are so not in charge. And that's, that's, the, that's part of, uh, it actually relates to my whole question about, the question earlier about intuition. We're so not in charge. We're so busy thinking about, you know, what does he want from me? And the, the operative word becomes me, and it's harder to focus on what does he want. And so this question is the same. It's, it's not like we get to have our way. And that, that's really the, the whole illusion, is that we get to have our way. It's, the path is... Uh, it, it's so complicated because... You have to have a certain amount of ego strength to be on the path. If you don't really have the capacity to dare to be different, to go on alone, you know, we can, someday somebody's going to make a skit and all the words are just going to be the song lyrics, you know. Whole conversations, whole philosophical discourses, because it's all there. Oh, isn't that, wasn't that fun? Where's Marcel? Yeah, that would be fun. Just conversation, you know. Did you go on alone this morning? Have you dared to be different? (laughs) But you have to, you have to have enough capacity to see through the maya. And that's why you have to have a human body in order to be able to make conscious spiritual progress. You have to have enough ego in place to be able to reflect upon your own situation and, and recognize the karmic law sufficiently, recognize that you are suffering and there is a cause to it and that therefore there is a response um, that, that you can generate. And, and that's what gets us all here. The people out there who aren't thinking about that aren't here because it just those thoughts haven't come to them. And then everything that was terrific that got you here is exactly what you now have to put aside. And it's, it's not like this self becomes mighty and perfected. Is that this self simply is not the issue anymore. Uh, it's self-forgetfulness. And self-concern, oftentimes 
we, we are actually simply self-concerned, but we have laid spiritual ideas on this. I'm self-concerned about being perfect. I'm self-concerned about doing master's will. I'm self-concerned about not failing. But I'm self-concerned. End of story. And what we really are, and, and it's not self-abnegation either. It's not, well, I'm the worst and I'm terrible and I can't do anything. It's that, you know, you're not the point. You're just not that interesting, really, <laughs> to anybody, above all to yourself. Right? So, no, we don't get to choose what 10% we do. We don't really get to choose anything because our vrittis are driving the story. The real enemy in all this is the vrittis. <laughs> the vrittis are a bummer, really, because I make all these decisions and then my vrittis, uh, whatever the word is, they trump them. You know, they just go boom, and then I'm spun by what I'm spun by. But All you have to do is just bring yourself back to center. You don't really have to make any other choices. I've heard all these things said a lot of times, but the great advantage of having a 70th birthday is that you've had time to make so many mistakes that there's just something, oh, I know what's wrong here. It's very simple. I've become self-concerned again. You know, that that 90-10% is... it's, it's, It's terrific, you know, but... It's really not something to think about. The only reason you should think about it is to say, if you could do it better, you would do it better, wouldn't you? That was my mantra, my earliest mantra. If I could have done better, I would have done better. And that, that's where that matters. Because we can't possibly do it all. But uh, dropping into the now, just doing the best you can, and... Uh, my salvation is up to God. I, I found a beautiful quote from Swami I hadn't seen before. He said, oh, my salvation is up to God. In the meantime, I'll just do my duty. You know, it gets very, very, very simple. And it's only possible to be that simple, you see, if you're stopped worrying about this one. And just trusted, really, on the deepest level that... You know, God has me in his hand. I mean, I I sometimes project out to the worst case. I find that relaxes me. I project out I project out to the worst possible situation that I can sincerely imagine and accept it. So I, I always have this list. Master has how many disciples, who knows? You know, long list of disciples. My name is the last one. I am the one that he's going to have to come back a trillion times if necessary. And I'm really sorry about his bleeding feet, but I mean, (laughs) I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And he's promised not to give up on me. And everything else is not worth thinking about. God bless you. 